Hello, my name's Colin Daniels. I'm the Working Age and Young People Service Manager for the Macula Society. Now, as you might know, the Macula Society hosts two live webinars each month focusing on all aspects of living with macular disease. We speak to leading experts, clinicians and researchers about the latest in macular disease. The first of the webinars focuses very much on age-related macular degeneration and the second on areas for people of a working age and a bit younger. Now we understand that not everyone has the opportunity to watch our webinars, so we have decided to turn some of the content into podcasts. The podcast will be available on all good podcast platforms. So here we go. My name is Stephen Scowcroft. I'm the Director of Services at the Macular Society. Colin is not with us directly in person today. He's busy this evening. So I'm uh, helping to facilitate today's session. So we're very pleased that we're focusing today on genetics and genetic counselling. And it's actually been quite a bit of a theme. We've had a couple of on different areas of, of these webinars uh, over this year so far. But today I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Andrew Webster, who, who uh, uh, he'll introduce himself in a minute, who is an ophthalmologist and leads the genetic services at Moorfields. And we're also joined by Hannah Knight, who's a genetics counsellor. So Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself and then we'll hand over to Hannah. Hi everyone, thank you Stephen and thank you Colin who can't be with us today. So yes, exactly, I'm an eye doctor working at Moorfields, I have a special interest in, in rare eye diseases and see a lot of patients and families with macular dystrophies, which I think is the, the topic of our talk today. And I have a, a position at the Institute of Ophthalmology, which is part of UCL, which works very closely with Moorfields. And Hannah? Thank you so much for having us here today. So, so my name's Hannah, so I'm one of the genetic counsellors at Moorfield Eye Hospital. So I work with patients with inherited retinal diseases mainly, and I'll be talking a bit about kind of the genetic testing, what it actually involves in the clinic. Over to you, Andrew. I think you're going to start and set the scene for us. Thank you, Stephen. So, so Hannah and I work in clinics in which there are many patients and families with inherited retinal disorders, including in inherited macular disease. Inherited retinal disease, should I know my gene? Now, for those busy people tonight who've got other things to do, I can tell you the answer and then you can do those other things. The answer is yes, but if you don't know, don't worry too much about it. So for those of us, for those people who want us to unpack that a bit, we will going forward. To make that answer a little more interesting, we're going to um, talk a bit about inherited disease and what differentiates those disorders in which a specific gene is important and that question is asked with more common disorders and what the difference is and why that might be a particular advantage and opportunity in treating these conditions. I will say a few advantages of knowing the underlying gene, what, why it is useful, uh, and Hannah will, will expand on that later. Finding genes is still quite difficult. It's a lot easier now than it was when I started this business back in the 1990s, when it was a, a major effort to find a gene. But it's still hard, and I'm just going to say a bit about why. Hannah's going to talk you through the, the process by which we discuss this issue with patients in the clinic and the genetic counselling that's involved in that. And finally, I'll answer the question, does it make the disorder treatable to, to, to wrap up? So, so first of all, there are two, generally in medicine, there are two types of disorder. And so, so one is a, a single gene disorder, an inherited disorder, in which one gene causes the problem. Now, we've, we've got 20,000 genes in our genome, and people with it are rare. Mendelian disease, named after Gregor Mendel, who, who first described inheritance uh, centuries ago, then th those people have one gene that's causing the problem. And we can identify that gene in many cases 
And that tells us an awful lot of information about the, that person's condition. On the other hand, there are more common disorders. So age-related macular disease is an example of this, but many other disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, more common things that are still genetic in large part, but are due to many different genes being inherited from parents. So you can't pinpoint one genetic culprit and, and go for it to try and treat it. You have to consider many, and you instead talk about specific pathways that bring about these common disorders, such as age-related macular disease. So the fact that <clears throat> these inherited disorders, which are the subject of our talk, are due to one gene, gives us an opportunity, because if we can identify that one gene, then there's one component to fix. If we have a broken down car and there's just one thing wrong with it, we can make it better relatively easy as long as we know where that one thing is. If you've got an old clapped out car that's broken in many ways after thousands of miles of, of driving, it's a lot more difficult and possibly and not possible. So that opportunity is exploited in research. <clears throat> and so we try and, whenever we can, find these genes and devise strategies to treat them by aiming our treatments at that specific defect that we know is, causes the condition. Now, these disorders are rare. There are a lot, each individual disorder is a, a rare one, but cumulatively, rare diseases such as this, affecting all systems, not just the eye, but, but uh, hearing, neurology, endocrinology, nephrology, every system is affected by these single gene disorders. Cumulatively, they're not so uncommon. Over 70% of the population would be expected to have one of these conditions during their lifetime. So roughly one in 12 people. Cumulatively, they're actually quite important. So a few reasons why then finding the gene for these disorders is helpful. So first of all, when we see a patient with a condition such as macular dystrophy or, or maculopathy, so that's a general term applied to a, a problem in which people have a condition affecting the central retina, that bit of the retina that sees detail, cause the macula, call the macula, which affects their vision. That could be due to very many different things. And one of those things is a single gene disorder. So finding the gene helps us make an immediate diagnosis. We can then rule out the possibility of it being due to a retinotoxic medication like hydroxychloroquine, which is a different disorder and requires different management. We can rule out it being an infection or an inflammation, which can affect the eye and would require a different approach to managing the case. We can differentiate maculopathies from age-related change. Sometimes that's more, more difficult to do, particularly in older people. But if you suspect a single gene, such as, such as a gene that causes Sorsby macular dystrophy, which is very similar to uh, age-related macular disease in some ways, but often happens earlier, then we know exactly what we're dealing with and that affects the management of the disorder. So first of all, finding the gene helps us confirm the diagnosis. Um, Secondly, it's my experience in the clinic that people find it easier to cope with the disorder when it's understood. And initially, many patients come along to us with a, a disorder that we think is inherited, but we haven't fully understood the cause. And once we do understand the cause, that helps. It helps people know that it's a condition that isn't a mystery anymore. It helps people look to see to what degree it might be treated in the future. It helps also manage people's expectations. It might not be quite as bad as they fear, after all, once we know the gene. So it does help patients and families understand the disorder. And Hannah will say a little bit more about that when it comes to the way it might affect other relatives in the family. And the third point I want to make about finding the gene 
and this is a more altruistic issue for, for people, is that it, it pushes forward research. So it's the only way really we're going to understand these conditions and make them better by understanding their cause and by directing treatments towards them. So even if we have a, a good generic treatment for a maculopathy of any kind, it will help us to know what specific gene is causing a subset of people in order to find out whether or not certain disorders are treated better with that generic treatment than others. So it, it helps greatly in understanding research. It helps us understand the biology of the condition. It helps us create animal models and start trials of treatment much more efficiently in animal models than we would do in humans. So it's very often done that way around. And without that, we're, we're working in a fog and we will never see clearly what's going on. So why is it so difficult? You have to understand just how large the genome is in humans. So all of our genetic information uh, resides in our genome. There are actually two genomes, but the one we refer to most is, is the nuclear genome. And that comprises 6,000 million letters of code and the code is written in, in DNA so it's a chemical code with four letters ACGT arranged in a particular order which is crucial and that order allows the cell to understand how to carry out the biological processes that, that are required for all human function. So 6,000 million letters we get 6,000 million letters we get um, 3,000 million letters from each parent so actually each cell has a, a very similar copy of their genome. So there are two copies, one from each parent, um, but they're slightly different because our parents aren't the same person. Now, if we were just to use an, a geographical analogy, and I, which shows us the, the distance between Moscow and Los Angeles, but the distance, I've chosen the distance because it's easy to convert to genetic letters. The distance from LA to, to Moscow, if we were to consider that to be the whole genome laid out in one long string, chromosome, end-to-end to, end to chromosome. And this is just half of your genome, the genome that you would in inherit from one person. Then on that same scale, um, and this is 16,000 kilometers is the, is the distance. On that same scale, a single gene would be 200 meters long. And we'd have 20,000 of those uh, spread along the, the, that very long journey um, with many spaces in between. So the majority of our DNA code doesn't actually encode genes that do things. It's spacer material that has more subtle functions or, or, or no function at all. So 200 meters would be the size of a gene, but very often we're looking for the specific change in the gene that causes the disorder. And that's usually one letter of code. And on the same scale, that would be five millimeters big. So imagine making the journey from Los Angeles to Moscow and every five millimeters checking to see whether there's a change that might be causing the rare disease. So it is a mammoth task and it's become feasible recently because now the technology used in sequencing that 3,000 million letters times two, one copy from each parent, is a lot better than it used to be. We're now able to do that in a day's worth of testing rather than many years and many centres uh, that was the case in the original human genome project. But it's still a hard thing and so even though in ophthalmology we're very good at finding the cause of rare diseases, more so than in most of the specialities, we still only find the genetic diagnosis in about 50 to 60% of our families. And it's incremental. We, we learn more as we go along. That will get higher the more, more we study uh, patients and families. And, and that's one of the benefits of, of research, that it, accumulates, um, it um, accumulates knowledge and helps us understand those families that haven't yet had their diagnosis found. So if you don't know your diagnosis yet, don't worry, you're in a large 
minority of people, even those that have had extensive testing, and it's getting better all the time. So Hannah, I'm going to hand over to you now to talk about how we counsel people in clinic. Thanks, Andrew. So yeah, so I'm going to talk more just about the actual practicalities of genetic testing and what it actually involves and, and how we actually do it in the clinic. So I'm a genetic counsellor, so really the big part of my job is organising genetic testing and helping patients just to understand the results that we get back from that and, and kind of adapting to those results as well and working on kind of the next steps um, once we have results back or, or don't have results back. So what does genetic counselling actually involve? So when we see a patient in the clinic, the first thing we'll do for any patient that we see for the first time is just to run through a family history. So for every patient with it, where we think they might have a genetic condition, um, this is what we do. And this is very, very helpful. So you might think, well, I haven't got a family history of, of any genetic problems or any or any vision problems. Now, even if there's no family history, that's still helpful for us to know. And, and that can actually give us a lot of information in itself, even without genetic testing. And often looking at the family history can tell us or give us an idea of, of what's likely to be the cause of their condition. But as we know, the only way for, of telling for sure what's causing your condition would be to organise a genetic test. So that's also just a big part of what would happen in a genetic counselling appointment. So a lot of my job also involves kind of information giving. So both prior to the genetic test and post-genetic test. So prior to it, it will be um, around talking about what the testing involves, what are the kind of pros and cons and, and the limitations of testing, and also giving information about kind of where people might get support or kind of signposting people on to, to other resources. There's also that counselling aspect of genetic counselling, and, and that's really kind of helping patients to, to kind of understand and adapt to a new diagnosis or to any kind of genetic results they might get. And part of that is talking about reproductive options. So when someone has a genetic result, we know that the risks to any of their relatives can be anywhere from incredibly low um, up to kind of 50%, so generally. So one of the big questions people ask when they, when they get their genetic results is, what does this mean for um, my family, for my children, or any children I might have in the future? And really that's a big part of my role, is helping people to understand what the risks are and whether or not there's any kind of options in terms of perhaps testing for relatives or in terms of kind of family planning, whether there's any kind of testing during pregnancy or things like that, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. So, I mean, Andrew touched a little bit on this earlier. So why is genetic testing important? So generally, when I see a patient in clinic, I'll say three main reasons, really. So the first is that it helps us to understand what's causing the condition. And that in turn can give us information about, for example, prognosis, whether this is a stable condition or something that's likely to progress. It can also give us information about how this has been inherited as well. So whether or not this is something that's been perhaps passed on from a parent who was also affected or whether or not this is something that comes from both sides of the family. So, so where parents are a carrier this condition. Genetic testing can also give information about things unrelated to the eye. So there are some conditions, and it's, it's relatively rare, I would say, but some conditions that we know can affect the eye or the macula and also cause other problems with health. So there are times where we organise genetic testing and it comes back that there's actually a kind of a wider issue at play. So perhaps there's more testing that is available to the patient. We can also see if patients are eligible for trials and treatments and, and what's going on in, in that kind of side of things. Whether there's any kind of injections they can get to help manage symptoms and whether there's clinical trials or any research going on for their condition. 
And finally, as I said before, it enables reproductive planning as well. So some of the common difficulties and kind of concerns of genetic testing. So it's worth saying that we offer genetic testing to every patient we see who we think may have a genetic condition. Now, it is entirely voluntary. So not all patients actually decide that they want to go ahead with genetic testing. And there's a number of reasons why this might be. And there's also just a number of concerns I wanted to go through that people often have around genetic testing and whether it's right for them. And yes. So the first thing, so genetic testing often doesn't actually change management or, or offer any kind of treatment for the patient. And Professor Webster will just talk about this a little bit more later. So often people think, well, if it's not going to change anything for me, then, then what's the point? That's one reason why people might not choose to go ahead with it. However, we know that a lot of people like to know what's causing their condition, even if it's not about changing anything for them. It's about giving them information, empowering them, and it means that they can um, make decisions that's right for them and share that information with the family as well. Another concern people have is just around the kind of emotional impact that the results can bring. So unlike a lot of testing that we offer in medicine, a genetic test doesn't just give you information about yourself. It gives you information about the wider family as well. And with that can bring a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions that some people prefer to kind of avoid. So that's another reason why people often choose not to go ahead with it. Now, when we're running through kind of the consent process for a genetic test, we talk a little bit about the limitations of genetic testing as well and what could possibly be flagged up. So with any genetic test, there's no guarantee that we will actually find an answer. So it depends on what condition we're looking at, but often we're looking at about 60-70% of the time where we do actually find a genetic cause for the condition. We just make people aware that there's actually no guarantee we will get an answer. Now, the testing that we're doing now, which I'll talk a little bit about in a second, is what's known as whole genome sequencing. So this involves looking at all of that genetic information in your body. Now, the benefit of this is that we're discovering new things all the time. So new genes that can cause these conditions, um, new variation in these genes. So if in the future we discover a new cause of these conditions, this large genetic test that we now offer, it means we can go back and reanalyze data. So what we say is that even if you're at the moment, if you've gone through genetic testing and we haven't found the cause of your condition, it's not necessarily going to stay that way. And we're getting patients even now, even kind of a year after testing, where we're going back and we're actually then finding the cause for their condition. And what we're now doing as well is recruiting patients to, to research studies as well, where the chance of finding their condition is, uh, it, or it makes it slightly more likely, because even if the clinical, so the NHS test is negative, doesn't find anything, there's a possibility that on the research side of things, someone could, could find something. Now, there's also the possibility for uncertainty. So a lot of people struggle with kind of that uncertainty, particularly where you're not getting any results back. You don't know what's causing your condition. But there's another situation in which sometimes we can find genetic changes that we're not 100% sure about. So we're not sure whether or not it's causing your condition. So this can be quite difficult for patients, I think, when you're getting a genetic result back, but we're actually saying, you know, we don't really know what this means. And in those kind of scenarios, we, we often organise more testing or more research and, and sometimes testing other family members can help us understand results as well. Now, one further thing, with the particularly with the new testing that we're offering, because we're looking at all of your genetic information, what we're finding now is that there's always a chance that we could find genetic results unrelated to the reason you're having this test. So unrelated to the macular condition. Now, 
there's two real scenarios with this. So the first is, as I touched on before, that we know sometimes retinal or macular conditions can be linked to other health problems. So um, there's always a possibility that we could find something um, that might have implications for other health aspects, in which case, obviously, we, we then offer more testing and, and more investigations. We're now also finding that with this wide test, there's always a possibility of flagging up completely unrelated findings. Um, and it's just something we let patients know. And a lot of people say, if we can find anything in my genetic information that has implications for my health or anything that, that might, I might be able to screen for, then actually people want to know that information, but not everyone does. So again, that's just why we make people aware of that. And lastly, data concerns. So where genetic data is concerned, people often are concerned about what the laboratory or what we are actually doing with that data. Are we kind of selling it on to people? Um, are people going to be doing research and work on it? So it's just kind of being aware of that. And it's up to a kind of discussion around that in clinic, because with the clinical grade tests, we're not sharing on that data. But we're also offering people that opportunity to be involved in research where perhaps it will be shared. So it's talking about who will, be, who will have access to your genetic data and, and what they might do with it. Probably one of the biggest reasons I see patients who, who don't want genetic testing is actually just because they're scared of needles. So the genetic test, generally what we need is a blood sample for it. And there's a lot of patients out there, a lot of people out there who, who don't like needles. Now, where we can, we try and organise saliva samples. So if that's you, that is a possibility, but it entirely depends on what test we're offering. And in terms of the actual process of testing, so the patient is assessed in the clinic. So, so that might be the genetics clinic at Moorfields or, or more and more, it might be outside. So within an ophthalmic unit elsewhere. So we're currently going through a process of what we call mainstreaming, where we're hoping that genetic testing won't just be something that's done in kind of specific locations around the UK. It's going to be something that all healthcare professionals can offer. So we're hoping that more and more people will be offered this kind of testing um, and more and more people will know exactly what's causing their condition. So once a patient's been diagnosed with a condition or um, we think it might be genetic, they're offered testing. And what this actually involves um, is a discussion around what the testing is and a consent form that comes with that, just making sure that, that they're aware of kind of the, the limitations and, and the possible outcomes. Um, and then it's a blood sample. So within the NHS, what we're offering for, for most patients with macular conditions is whole genome sequencing now. So that's looking at all of the genetic information in your body. There are a few exceptions for, for very specific conditions where maybe there's only one gene that can cause that condition. So there's no point looking at all that genetic information. We're just doing very targeted testing. But for a lot of conditions, so such as um, Stargardt's or, or conditions at macular dystrophies that look like Stargardt's, and we are offering this whole genome sequencing now. This test takes about six months to come back. So it's not a quick test by any means. And what we generally do is organize that with the patient, how they want that to be fed back. So whether or not they want a telephone call or, or fed that, have that fed back by letter. Um, and we always give people um, our contact details, at least at Moorfield, so that if they have any questions about those, then they can get in contact. Once we actually have a genetic result, what does that actually mean? So sometimes further testing might be available for the patient. So um, that's particularly where it's part of kind of a wider syndrome and, and there might be kind of other health problems at play. Now, testing available for relatives. So 
as I said, we know that depending on what's causing your condition, the risk can be well, are generally either very low or around 50%. So where that risk is quite high, so where that risk is, say, 50%, it does open up the option of testing for, for other family members. So whether that be kind of your children or, or brothers or sisters or, or even parents. So often people are quite rightly concerned about whether or not this is something that could be passed on to their children. Now, where we're seeing a patient with a with a genetic condition, with a macular condition, the testing that we offer is what's known as diagnostic testing. So we know you have a condition and we're trying to come up with a diagnosis and we're going to try, we're trying to tell you exactly what's causing it. Now, there's another type of genetic testing, and that's known as predictive or pre-symptomatic testing. Now, that would be for, for example, where you've got a child and you're worried about whether or they're worried about whether or not they're going to develop this condition in the future. Um, and that testing, once we have a genetic result, is then available to them. This testing is a little bit different and would just require a bit more of a conversation about exactly what it involves, just because not everyone wants to know whether or not they're at risk of developing a condition in the future. So it's really quite a personal decision. And also for that reason, we, offer, we often don't offer testing to children. And we let them make their own decision when they're when they're able to do so kind of from 16 onwards, generally. The exception to this is where there is perhaps something that could be done. So if there's kind of any kind of treatment that could be offered or, for example, there's some conditions where you can get a buildup of fluid at the back of the eye and, and perhaps injections could be useful. So for situations like that, that's where we would offer that testing for children. But obviously it depends just exactly on what your condition is. In addition, if there is a high risk of passing this condition on, and perhaps you're not at the family planning stage yet, or you haven't got children yet, or are looking to have more children, one thing that we talk about is whether or not there's anything in terms of family planning and whether there's any kind of considerations they want to make. Now, for a lot of people, they're not concerned too much about kind of passing these conditions on, but some people are very worried about it. And so what we generally talk about is whether or not there's anything that they can be doing kind of proactively. So what I really just wanted to highlight here was because a lot of people aren't aware of it. So where the risk of passing conditions on a high, there's now an option on the NHS, which is funded by the NHS, known as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, and essentially, this is a form of IVF but where you're only implanting embryos which, which aren't affected with the condition. So depending on what your condition is, it, it may or may not be licensed for that, but it's worth everyone, I think, just being aware of that as an option. And then finally, and I'm going to pass over to Andrew for this, so if we know what the cause of your condition is, it opens up options in terms of research studies and clinical trials, and, and what we do at Moorfields is just keep a database of any kind of genetic results for any patient we've got. The idea being that if there is any research going on or if there is a clinical trial, we can get in contact with them easily and let them know. Hannah, thank you. So um, just to end, I'm just going to say a little bit about this question. Will getting a, a gene, knowing a gene for my disorder, um, make it treatable? We've danced around that a bit so far because the answer is no at the moment. So there is one rare inherited disease affecting the retina that can be treated with gene replacement therapy. Um, many, many may have heard this, it's not a macular dystrophy as such, it's a, a condition that affects the whole retina and it affects children and it can cause blindness in, in young people, quite severe blindness. And that's RPE65, that's the name of the gene um, that causes a condition that's been trialled in animals and humans and is now an effective gene replacement treatment which 
people can get on the NHS. Um, it's a very rare disorder, and the, the prevalence of that is a few per million people. So there are probably 120, 180 or so in the whole of the UK with it. So it is rare, but it's a, a proof of principle. And so it gives us optimism that um, knowing the missing components in, in many of these disorders might be amenable to replacing that com component with this strategy of gene replacement therapy, uh, gene therapy. Now, an important point about this whole strategy though is that it's preventative and not curative. So very often when people think of a treatment for vision loss, they understandably think of one that will make their vision better. Unfortunately, most of these um, strategies are instead trying to prevent further visual decline. And RPE 65 um, treatment works like that. It has the added benefit that in some young people, it can also improve the vision a little bit that we can measure. And that's why the trial was successful and, and noted to be so quite quickly. So what about other conditions? So there are plenty of other trials going on. Many of these are gene-directed strategies. So this is where you need to know the specific gene a person is affected by and that the treatment is geared towards that specific gene. And that includes gene replacement, but it includes other, other therapies as well, such as gene editing, which is a new promising technology uh, which might benefit some disorders, or, or special techniques, allele-specific oligonucleotides, that is molecules that target a specific type of spelling mistake in the gene to try and stop the misfunction of, of that gene that is consequent upon the, the mutation. And a lot is going on now. So when I started this, my study of, of inherited diseases 20 years ago or so, there weren't any trials hardly at all. And now there've been at least 19 specific genes that have been trialed or are ongoing trials with gene replacement alone. Now there are other ways of trying to address specific genes and that is to understand their biology and direct medicines to making better that particular biological pathway that is compromised by the genetic mutation. And the most common cause of macular dystrophy, um, Stargardt disease, we now call that ABCA4 retinopathy because the gene is ABCA4 and it's quite a variable and, and wide diverse condition it can be very severe in some people and, and a lot less so in others. But that particular type of problem can be targeted with drug therapies. And so there are at least five different strategies now based on clever ideas of specific drugs to target that biological pathway to try and slow down the problems that occur in the retina consequent upon reduction or loss of the ABCA4 gene. And then there are other strategies that don't depend upon the specific gene. And people may have heard of these, um, stem cell treatments, for instance. Now, either they're used to try and reconstruct the retina, which I think is, is at the moment ambitious, and, and there's a lot more work that needs to be done, or else they're used as ways to deliver proteins to the cells that are degenerating. But that is being tried, and that is therapy that doesn't depend upon the specific gene that's, being, that's causing the problem. Two other strategies, are worthy of mention, retinal implants have been around for 15 or so years. And these, this is a way to try and use the surviving cells in the retina, not affected by primary condition. And that's usually the inner retinal cells, which connect with the optic nerve. We deal with the outer retinal cells, the photoreceptors and the retinal pigment epithelium that unfortunately degenerate during, during these disorders. But most people that have these conditions have retained inner retinal cells. And so 
using a retinal implant to stimulate those cells in response to the image from a camera is, is a strategy that's being trialed. And finally, a, a cleverer way of, of doing a similar thing is a technique called optogenetics. And that is delivering a gene to those inner retinal cells, the ganglion cells that connect to the brain through the optic nerve. A gene which encodes a protein that reacts to light and renders those cells light sensitive. So that they may take over some of the job that the photoreceptors did before they died away. And that's a clever way really of, of an implant. It's not using hardware, but instead a gene treatment to achieve the same result. So there are lots of things going on and we should remain optimistic. And there are many opportunities to, to be part of trials, although trials are very, it must be realized that trials are very selfish. And so investigators will want a specific type of person to give the, the most useful information to, to the actual study. So many people won't be eligible for trials. And that doesn't matter. They're not treatments, they're strategies to, to learn more about managing the condition. Finally, I just want to mention how people can still be very helpful in research and have already been very helpful. One large study that helped us learn a lot and is still doing so about inherited diseases and including inherited eye diseases, the genomic signal study. And I'll stop recruiting now, but many people will have entered that and allowed investigators to examine their genome to understand their primary disorder and later on to also understand things like why some people with a genetic disorder are more severely affected than others. There's a great deal of variability in these conditions. And that also points towards ways in which we could make things better. So if we turn a severely affected person into one who's a lot less severely affected. And even though that stopped, that's ongoing because the data is a very useful resource. There is a, a further cohort for patients with most rare diseases, including inherited eye disease. And that is the NIHR bioresource for rare diseases. And this is recruiting at the moment. It's a national study. NIHR stands for National Institute of Health Research. This is an NHS-funded research study. And the aim of this is to collect together as much data as possible, both genetic and clinical, on rare disorders. So even at Moorfields, rare disorders are rare. We don't see so many people with each specific gene. But if we join up with the whole of the country and collect together the patients that we see, we'll learn an awful lot more. And so that's the aim of this, this study. And so even if your gene is known and you're, you're a well-studied person, um, it's still very valuable to have you within that study. The genomic signal study was for people who didn't know their gene because the aim was to, to find it. So that's still going. That's been going now for uh, nearly five years and it will continue and it's building up a very useful resource of uh, information. And finally on that, it also allows investigators to find people who might be willing to do trials or to be part of further studies. So do, do know about that. So that's us finished now. And I think we're happy to take any. Yeah, thank you. Thank questions. you very much. And, and thank you for really explaining what is quite a complex problem and, and challenge uh, in such a clear and, and well-defined way. And so I mean, one of the, the, the quick question I had around that was, you'd mentioned about how now, Hannah, it's routine to kind of, once you've got a diagnosis to then be offered testing. I understand you know, people may have been diagnosed a long time ago and not necessarily been offered that at that time. Are they able to now get tested or how would they be able to possibly get tested and access things that are available now that weren't when they were originally diagnosed? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and we see quite a lot of patients who, who have had a long-standing diagnosis of, of say, Stargardt's, and, and they've had that for 10, 20 years even. And then um, the, the technology has obviously moved on a long way since then. And, and what I would say is that if anyone wants genetic testing and, and has a diagnosis, a, a genetic diagnosis, then by all means get a referral into Moorfields or or even into a, their local genetic service, for example, who can offer that testing. Genetic testing has changed recently. The, the labs have reconfigured and there are now seven laboratory hubs geared towards testing in all rare disorders. And this reconfiguration was to do with two things. One, the technology change that Hannah has mentioned, the technology is much better now and, and much more sensitive. And secondly, there, there is a, a need and a, a realisation that people with these rare disorders are better off, usually, knowing what's causing them because it's it's important information and helps in the ways we've we've mentioned so there's no reason why someone who hasn't been in contact with an eye doctor for decades but perhaps wants to know a bit more about what they've got and um they see news items happening and wonder whether it's anything at all to do with their condition then there's every reason to get the gp to refer them into a, an eye unit that has a an interest in genetic disease Thank you. I'm going to turn to some of the questions we have about deciding when to test children and ages 13, 10 and 13. Hannah, you mentioned this about it's obviously not routinely offered to people, to children at a younger age, but give them the opportunity to do that. But this is also linked to treat-specific treatment for Avastin as well, which may have a better impact when started earlier. So how do you kind of manage and advise uh, someone in that kind of position? Appreciate you may not be able to go into great detail there, but Matt, perhaps what's your kind of thoughts on that at this moment in time? Andrew, did you want to answer that one? Just because it's term, in terms of Avastin. Generally speaking, Anna, it's true, isn't it? That we're not supposed, we try not to test children for condition that won't affect them until they're adults. It is preferred that they are adults when they're tested so that they can be involved in uh, the decision. And, and Sorsby uh, is, is a rare condition affects the macula. It's an inherited disorder uh, due to a specific gene, uh, usually inherited from a parent. It's a dominant disorder that runs through families. It is such a condition. It doesn't affect children. And so we wouldn't, we're not supposed to test a child in that situation. Is that, Hannah, anything to add? No, yeah, I think that's spot on. No, it, it would all change. It would all change if we could prevent the disorder from causing vision loss by detecting it early. And that's the aim of medicine, isn't it? To, to find a condition before it does harm and treat it before it does. Prevention is better than cure. And that's one of the aims of genetic research and understanding these conditions at the molecular level to try and think of ways of preventing the disorder. But as yet, unfortunately, we're not there. And so, uh, no, it, it doesn't make sense to test children for conditions affecting adults. I guess what you're saying there is if there was then treatments that were able to be effective, you know, we might even have genetic screening as part of that program to try to get that early early prevention or something yeah. like that but we're it's a long way off from that exactly for, for rare disorders it, it wouldn't make sense because each individual one is is so rare mm -hmm. you wouldn't do population screening for these yeah. but you would screen families yes and you'd want to find people relatives who don't have any symptoms yet but have a genotype that suggests they will do later and give them the preventative tablet uh, i hope that happens before i retire in some of these conditions it, it might do yet but Yes, and that's really, again, the, the kind of reason why the Macular Society is there in terms of investing into research is to beat mm -hmm. macular disease so that we can address some of those. The question about are they able to speed that up from going to a private hospital and, and, and doing that in the same way? Um, 
you know, I'll, I'll leave it open to whoever wants to perhaps tackle that first. So it's a difficult question to answer, really, I'd say. So the difficulty with a lot of private hospitals in this country is that I, I think when offering genetic testing, they often don't offer the support that should come alongside genetic testing. So that's speaking to a genetic counsellor and really making sure that actually you understand what this is, this decision is that, that you're making. So, so my concern in this scenario is, so the, the daughter is 20 and wants to know, can they speed it up? My concern would be that any private lab would just say, well, here's the test, go ahead, this is the answer. When really it's, it's, there's a lot of factors you want to be considering, particularly at kind of a, a young age when you don't have any symptoms. When people go privately, we actually do end up getting a few referrals into the NHS from even private clinics saying this patient wants genetic testing. So there's no guarantee that actually you'd be able to get that testing done privately. Um, it wouldn't be done through the same lab, it would be done separately. But again, I'd just be a bit concerned about kind of the quality of the testing and the support that they offer. It's always an option. If you can find somewhere, then yeah, and, and it's causing you a lot of anxiety, then yeah. Official turnaround time for the, the whole genome sequencing is actually four months. So generally we're saying six months just to allow for any kind of delay. But actually, we've been getting a lot of results back in four months. So at the moment, it's, they've been spot on. Well, that's good to hear. And thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much indeed on behalf of the Mac Society for for um, Professor Andrew Webster and Hannah Knight. It's been really helpful. We'll see you again soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.